This is Museum People, a podcast that celebrates individuals connected with the museum field by highlighting their work, passions, opinions, and personalities. In each episode, you'll hear stories and viewpoints from a variety of museum people, unsung workers to executive directors, volunteers to trustees, as they help change the world one visitor at a time. And now, the hosts of Museum People, Dan Yeager and Marika Van Dam. Hi, Marika. Hey, everyone. Hey, Dan. Hey. Here we are, episode two, season three. Yeah. We wanted to give a plug for National Museums Advocacy Day, by the way, uh, which is coming up February 27th and 28th down in Washington, D.C. I am a five-star advocate now. It sounds I've like been five years in a row. That's amazing. And this will be my sixth. I've been zero times. Really? Yeah. Wow, you should go. Yeah, you know, it's I, so let me state all the reasons why I won't go, and you can <laughs> and tell our them. listeners why they should go. Okay, <laughs> right. one, I can't leave the office. Mm. Yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> um, my museum won't pay for me to go, I have to pay out of pocket. Right, there are roommates. Oh, I'm going to hitchhike down there? Hitchhike. Use your imagination. Um, I will drive you down. No, okay. I'm flying. Okay. <laughs> so there's so that's a concern. Um, also, it, I love museums, but I'm terrified of being put on the spot. Yeah, right. I think that's it's a common thing. The fear of falling apart when you're facing a legislator or their aides. And it, so the bottom line for the actual experience is uh, one of the best I've ever had. It's, by the way, a footnote, the best networking experience you're ever going to have in the museum field because you're hanging around with people constantly waiting, museum leaders usually, um, hanging around waiting for these meetings to transpire. And so you're just, you know, chatting informally. It's a, it's a great time. And you learn a lot about advocacy. The actual experience is when you're in an office, a legislative office, first of all, the AAM trains you uh, the day before. That's the 27th. It's a full day of training. So you learn what it's like to be an advocate, practicing your elevator speech, um, what the legislative issues are and all that kind of a thing. So a lot of talking points. The second thing is you end, you're usually going into a legislative office as a group, so you can talk or not talk, and there's usually somebody that steps up to be the leader of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is you're usually not meeting with the actual senator or uh, or representative, him or herself. You're meeting with an aide that's maybe 20 two years old, I something see. like yeah. that. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, you're looking at them, they're nodding very nicely and taking notes and whatever, but it's not an intimidating experience at all. But I have met, you know, some senators and some uh, members of Congress, which um, is exciting. So you think you're saying that just showing up is sending is, is most Absolutely. of the message. Well, the, the thing about it is that this has only been going on now uh, for a few years. Uh, in general. I think it's eight years old now, which is hard to believe that museums have been around as long as they have, but they've only been a presence um, on uh, Capitol Hill for for such a short time. The other thing is that we only get about 250, 300 people there. So it's a very small uh, turnout, which is something that we really, really want to work at. I think the message that we all uh, th- that are really into advocacy, we want to communicate is that everybody is an advocate um, who works in the museum field and should be an advocate, not just people like me who work in an association or you know folks that only receive money right now from the federal government, those types of things. It's really important, I think, for 
museums generally and everybody to be an advocate for their their field and for their museum both at a federal level so we encourage people to come to this but also on a on a state and local level as well yeah so marika before we get started on our main interview today with laurie phillips i want to uh, introduce another mini segment on our aaslh person on the street interviews yeah, great. Live from Detroit, Michigan. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they have a lot of interesting things to say. And I know if people like to hear comparatively what people are saying. It's That's kind of funny. They get very bashful on these oh, interviews. History, history people are very bashful. Don't run from Dan. Right. He's all right. <laughs> well, my name is David Thielen, and I live in Bloomington, Indiana. The issues I hear being discussed, how can we be more relevant, more diverse, more open? So, second question, uh, the theme of the conference here is the spirit of rebirth. If you could give yourself a rebirth or your favorite museum a rebirth, what would it look like? Well, to be a rebirth, it must be aware of its birth. So it would go back and, uh, and consider who, who it originally was. But to be a re and be born again, it would be reconsidering all the things it had been and what it might be. Uh, last question, why are history museums the best kind of museums there are? Well, they may not be, and some of them are much better than others. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're a historian and a philosopher, too. I like that. <laughs> okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Brady Cress. Um, I'm with uh, Dayton History in Dayton, Ohio. And, you know, it seems to be the same kind of thing that I've heard in the last decade, uh, uh, fundraising, um, engagement with guests they always collection storage issues um probably based on the sessions i went to but but i, I mean that's kind of the the small talk among people yeah so uh, the spirit of rebirth that's the theme of the conference if you could give yourself or your museum a rebirth what would it look like it would be uh, uh fulfilling the the remainder of our uh, our master plan um so I don't know if that's it's kind of continuing the the rebirth. Uh, we we, we, we kind of went through that yeah ten years ago and and are still still processing it, still chipping away at the plan. Okay, great. Last question: Why are history museums the best kind of museum? Uh, because they relate to everyone's past. We all we have a uh, we all have our roots somewhere, and in, in this uh, history museums uh, spell that out for us. Okay, my name is Colleen McCartney. I graduated with my master's in May, so I'm working part-time as a museum assistant in DeSoto County Museum in Hernando, Mississippi. Um, One of the things I've really heard talked about and kind of the challenging things is really community community engagement is the number one thing that's really been pressed of interacting with your audience, how to make everything hands-on and get people really invested in museums. The spirit of rebirth, that's the theme of this meeting. If you could give yourself or your museum a rebirth, what would would it look like? Ooh, okay, that's a tough one. So rebirth. I definitely would incorporate more probably living history and having our programs out. Since we are a county museum, kind of take creating living history more and going out into the schools and doing kind of the theater works, kind of revamping that aspect to it. Because we still go and we give the programming and it is effective and we are still, you know, they really call to us a lot to go into schools. But I think it'd be kind of fun to change it up a bit, bring something new to the table. Why are history museums the best kind of museum? Because I feel that history just reaches kind of everything. It, you know, it is history, but it also can reach an art. It kind of is the center point for a lot of things. And if you're really interested in something that can, you know, say you're interested in baseball, that's relevant today. It was 100, 100 years ago. You know, it, it really kind of connects to everything. So everybody should love it. 
Thank you, Colleen. Appreciate it. Good luck. All right. So my name is Will Stoudemire. I am the director of the G.W. Frank Museum of History and Culture, which is on the grounds of the campus of the University of Nebraska at Kearney. Uh, And around the conference, I think a lot of the conversation... It's geared towards issues of interpretation, issues of access, issues of voice. That's been a big issue here. Uh, most of the focus I've seen is, has been on that, on, on ways to incorporate more voices into our interpretations, into the stories that we share, uh, to really embrace the complexity, to, to thrive in the complexity of the past. Um, that's been a, a very interesting point to, to come out of a lot of the conversations we've had. The spirit of rebirth is the theme of the conference. If you could give yourself or your museum a rebirth, what would it look like? <laughs> well, it's, it's appropriate for us because we just completely rebranded and are um, restoring two-thirds of the building for a wholly new function uh, that the museum has never served uh, as, a, as an effort of rebirth just on an individual level. Last question. Why are history museums the best kind of museums? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you know, I love all museums, uh, but history museums are great. Just there's they teach you a, a better way of understanding the human condition. Uh, but if if we really embrace what what public history has to offer and what a lot of this conference has to offer, it really helps us also appreciate the complexity of our humanity. Okay, so I'm Bob Beatty. I am currently chief of engagement at AASLH, and uh, issues things that I've heard. Um, you know, we've, we've had a lot of discussions about diversity and inclusion, of course. I think that's a, a big issue in, in the field right now and, and something that, that we're ASLH and I think the field is thinking a lot about. Um, and then obviously all those connections to uh, a community's history and its past versus its present and its future. And being in Detroit, you know, the, the, the theme of rebirth uh, is a big part of the discussions as well. Yeah, so the spirit of rebirth. Tell me a little bit about uh, if you could give yourself or your favorite museum or all museums, a rebirth, what would it look like? Oh, wow, what a great question. Do you know that the, the biggest rebirth is in helping helping funders understand how important our work is and, and not to be focused so much on uh, programmatic? That's, that's probably the thing that most most vexes me, concerns me going forward. It's, it's the part of the formula we have the least amount of control over, and with a little bit of help, I think we could do a lot of good. A lot more good than we're able to do. So there's a rebirth for you. There's a, there's a uh, Mount Everest uh, climb for us all to make together. Right. All right, last question. Why are history museums the best kind of museum? Well, because they... Wow, you just challenged me with the very best question ever. And I, I typically just... It's, it's like assumed, but... Um, you know, I think that they're the most tangible, in all honesty, and, and I don't mean that to besmirch other institutions. I think history museums and organizations, everybody has a past, everybody has a history. Now, they may interpret things differently than, than you know, history and memory are two different things, but understanding the past, the tangible nature of, of objects and things um, that lead to ideas, I think it's a lot more, lot more tactile, um, sometimes an easier barrier to, to overcome. Um, by the same token, that doesn't make others bad. It just makes history institutions better. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, Bob. You mentioned, Marika, the NEMA conference, and uh, if anybody attended that, you will know we did our keynote 
session a little bit differently this year. We had several different presentations, some of them dramatic and some of them more interesting from an intellectual standpoint. And one of our presenters was Laurie Phillips from Minnesota, who developed this program called Museum Sage. And um, this was your interview. I was very excited that Lori was uh, speaking at Neiman. Had um, you met her before? I'd never met her. I'd mm. heard of her. And uh, she was everything that you can imagine from someone from Minnesota. She was delightful. <laughs> yeah, right. Give us a quick overview about what Museum Sage is all about. Sure, yeah. Museum Sage is an experience where you um, think of a question that you want answered. You go to a museum and you use the objects in the museum to help you answer that question. It's a guided experience. So you're not doing it alone. You have someone with you who has been trained in this practice to guide you through the experience, and you can do it just yourself and your guide, or you can do it with a group of people and a guide. Is this kind of a weird experience, or what is it? It's funny. Uh, it depends on you, and it's you know you get out of it what you put into it. I didn't think it was weird, and I had a great experience, and I can't wait to do it again. And Rainy, what about it? Rainy Tisdale was part of this interview, and was she part of your experience then as well? Rainy was my guide. Oh, the guide. That's Rainy right. and I have yeah. been friends for many, many years. She's one of my favorite people in the world, and she guided me on this experience. She's a trained guide in Museum Sage. Uh, well, so Rainy Tisdale, I also respect an awful lot. Um, uh, she's a dynamic museum professional. She helps move the field. She's one of ways. our thought leaders in yeah, the field today. Absolutely. So Rainy was your guide, and uh, the interview is with both Rainy and uh, Laurie Phillips. So let's give a listen. I'm Marika Van Dam, and I am joined here with Laurie Phillips and Rainy Tisdale. Thanks for joining us. We're, we're so pleased to have you. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I would love to just start off with you telling us a little bit about who you are. Well, I work as an artist and a life coach, and 16 years ago, my husband and I designed Museum Sage, which used to be called Artomancy. Um, we were at the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis, and I'd been grocery shopping that morning, and I was in this mode of painting, label, painting, label, painting, label, and I was just frenetic, and I knew there was a better way to look at art, and so I was complaining about it to my husband, and he had just been reading a book by Andre Breton, and it talked about playing in the Paris flea market with Alberta Giacometti, and they would buy these objects that would help their both of their creative endeavors. So my husband, John Spade, on the spot, made up Museum Sage. And we played it. I loved it. I started playing it with all my friends and my coaching clients. And it just started to spread like crazy. And all these years later, here it is in New England. It's interesting that you approach it as a game. Instead of, I guess when I've heard about it, it was always like this conceptual art project. Well, it is, but sometimes people get scared when I talk about conceptual art projects. So I want to make it as non-threatening as possible. So calling it a game yeah. actually is a little bit more relaxing for most people. Yeah. Um, maybe you can walk me through what it was like when you first experienced it and how um, you and your husband worked on it together and what changed when you were working through some guinea pigs. Well, um, this wasn't the first time, but the, the really seminal time that I, I experienced Museum Sage was uh, I was working with a coach friend of mine, and my question was, when will I get to leave my crappy job? A, I bet that's a common question. <laughs> it is a common question. And what happened was uh, I was working at Blue Cross Blue Shield at the time as a graphic designer, and I ended up 
at random, picking a painting that was 100% blue. And I looked at it and I went, oh, this is not good. And I realized that what it meant was, you don't get to leave yet. You have not learned what you're meant to learn at this job. So my coach friend said, well, what would it be like if Blue Cross was your dream job? What would have to be present? Mm -hmm. And I thought about that for a couple weeks. And I thought, well, all of me would get to come to work. My public art self, my coach healer self, all of me would come to work. So I took the next five years and I set about making that come true. And all these amazing things started to happen. Out of nowhere, I got an invitation to redesign a stairwell in a corporate campus building. And I turned it into a big community art project, stencil poetry, four flights of stairs. So it, it really, um, it, I loved my job by the time I, I did leave. And so it, was, it just had such a life-changing ramifications for me that I became a big fan of it. And then I just started to see how that was helping other people as well. Um, Lori, so it's it's interesting to me that um, that you and your husband came up with this game, as you call it. So um, that's just not something that you stu- one person stumbles upon. So what about you and your husband and your dynamic and your backgrounds really brought this about? Well, my husband is a creative writer and a journalist, an arts journalist. And I work as an artist and a life coach. So we blend all these interesting worlds together and we're quite playful together. We just make things up all the time, and it's quite fun to hang out with him. So we just do stuff like this a lot. Mm-hmm. And one thing I really appreciate about what museums are doing now is they're making the museum environment more playful. Uh, so, for example, the Minneapolis Institute of Art has uh, did a whole year of these really fanciful, fun events there. and. So I feel like the museum world is really inviting people like me to jump in and collaborate, and I so appreciate that. Uh, What have your critics said? Well, Ellen Sawaris at the Peabody Essex Museum directs 125 docents, and we actually did a session there two years ago now, and she said before before she did it, she thought, oh, this is just new age crap. I'm not going to do this. This is stupid. And then she thought, oh, no, I'm the head of the docents. I should do it. So, you know, she was taking one for the team. Um, But she said when she did it, she was shocked at how fun it was and that she saw art in a totally new way. And that she says, even though I'm not a sharer, I felt so comfortable sharing my question and my insights that it was quite a revelation to me. Um, One of the interesting things about art history is that it's only been since 1750 that people have not used art in a personal way. So, for example, when people would consult a Madonna painting, it was to get information about their life, about the state of their soul, about whether they were going to get to heaven. Um, It was a really crucial interaction that people had, and it was personal and really, it's just been since 1750 that it's become more abstract, it's become more conceptual, more retinal. And so Museum Sage is really returning people to that deep personal connection with art that where it can tell them. And it's not just art. It's also anything in a history museum or a science museum or an arboretum. So it's not just art, but I think art is a great way to talk about it. Um, And and another point I wanted to make is that people really bond to the art piece that they get. So I 
worked with a woman probably 10 years ago, and she says, every time I go back to the museum, I visit my piece. So she has so much ownership of it. And what we find is that people look at their piece as old friends. And it's just such a, um, it's a way that really people can bond to the museum itself. And so Mary Oliver, the poet, has a really great quote that whatever we pay attention to is what we end up taking care of. So I, so I want museums to be taken care of because I don't want them to go anywhere because that's my happy place. So I feel like we're doing our part with that. What really attracts me to um, Museum Sage is that it's putting a framework around something that we all kind of already felt about about art. Um, you know, those of us who are lucky, I grew up in a place where I couldn't go to a, an art museum all the time, right? I lived in the country. And then when I moved to Boston, um, I could and I would always go see my favorite pieces, and it was so special to me. And I can go and see those pieces and remember what it was like when I saw them for the first time or when I was having that kind of day or whatever. And this really puts a framework around that. And like you say, that personal connection, that's the whole point. Well, and I also think that museums are one of the few places where it's safe to be contemplative in our mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. So it's really, it's a shrine. And I feel like when we play Museum Sage, it's it's um it's a sacred experience. It's a game, but it's also sacred and spiritual even. Yeah. Um so for any any of our listeners who don't know anything about what this is, I'm gonna describe my experience in Rainy. We did it this summer. Yeah, at Harvard Museums. We did it at the Harvard Art Museums and it was totally fun and exciting and enjoyable the whole time. So we sat down in the lobby. You had a bag full of magic tokens there were numbers, numbers. and um, I put my left hand in because that's my non-dominant hand as I recall and I picked out some series of numbers depending on whatever you told me to do and then those were the coordinates is that right yeah so they they helped us pick basically at random mm-hmm. uh, the floor of the museum and then the actual room the gallery on that floor Mm-hmm. And then eventually the actual piece of art that we would go to. And so, you know, sort of p- picking this random series of numbers out of the the bag, you then follow um, follow those to lead you right. to the piece that you're going to work with. Right. We did that, and then uh, it was a, a close-your-eyes situation. And um, Rainy, we walked from where we were sitting in the lobby to the location. I think it was on, luckily on the same floor. I felt weird because I had my eyes closed walking through the museum holding on to Rainy. And Rainy said, you're going to feel weird, but you just got to work through it. And I thought, of course, sure, I'll do this. As silly as I felt, I was, I was going with it. I was basically like, this is an experience, so I'm just going to try it. I'm going to trust Rainey's experience. I'm going to trust the artist who conceived it. Like, I'm, I'm in it. Okay, so we ended up in our room, which was our final destination. You positioned me somewhere and then said, okay, open your eyes, and there it is. So the, my piece was, um, it was taller than us up on the wall, and yeah. it was small, and it was a square, and it was... It was um, a bas-relief. It was a bas-relief. So I think we should uh, we should talk about the question, which we didn't talk about, and that happened yeah. when we were being orient when I was being oriented. Um, Rainy said, "You know, the point is you're going to ask 
the the art a question. It's going to answer it for you, and we're going to work on that together. And you explained all this to me about um, it can be this kind of question, it can be a serious question, it can be a non-serious question. You gave me examples of what other people have asked. Um, you said you can tell me the question or not. So we went through all of that. Um, can you, Lori, speak to the importance of the question? The, the importance of the question is to have someone go inside and really consult their deepest selves. So we want this to matter to them. So we ask people to choose something that's pretty challenging um, and something that really matters to them, something they really want an answer to. And it could be something simple, like what color car should I buy? But that really matters a lot to some people. And so <laughs> we want them to be invested in the whole process. So that's really, it can be about anything. It could be about you know, spirituality, it could be about your relationships, it could be about uh, finances, work, anything at all. So do you think that most people want to come to a definite conclusion of their question? Because I guess the question I had, and I think we talked about it halfway through, I, I didn't have a question really that I was like, I need to get to the bottom of this thing. Um, which was kind of interesting. Maybe I should have chose something a little less serious. But I had a thing, and, and we talked about it. Um, but I also, it wasn't this This art is going to solve, it's going to answer the question for me. And do you think that most people want, they have a different experience, they want to answer the question? I don't know. I'm going to say yes and no, because on one hand, you know, we're human beings. Life is really complicated and tough. And all the time, we want somebody to just tell us what the answer is and so you know and and honestly most people I guide not all of them but a lot of them are asking some version of the question what the heck am I doing with my life somebody give me the answer and so there is that uh, there is that desire but it's also honestly it's not realistic and that's what we learn I mean that's part of learning how to be an adult right is that nobody's going to give you the answers and you just have to keep doing the best you can and so um, it's it, sometimes it does give you a clear answer and maybe that answer was there all along and it sort of brought it to the surface but for a lot of people and in fact when I have been led on this experience and you know sort of done it for myself it's definitely been the kind of thing where it gave me some avenues to explore with what I was dealing with and some ways of thinking about it more deeply but it wasn't insight on the spot it helped me know myself better and what I wanted better. And it also, you know, sort of the kind of thing where you mull over it over the course of weeks or even months. You show the photo to your of the painting to your mother <laughs> and get her perspective <laughs> and all your girlfriends. Right. And they tell you other things about yourself and how it relates. And so and that's just an unfolding process the way life is an unfolding process and sort of figuring it out. And we, you know, it's constantly exploring. But, you know, we use the term exploring all the time in museums, personal exploration. Um, so, you know, that's just part of the process. Absolutely. I didn't cry when I was there with Rainy, um, but I, I can like that must be a common reaction, and I almost it would have been okay if you had. I know it would have been okay, but also I don't know is is I don't I don't want people who are thinking about having this experience and knowing that they might cry deter them from doing it. Oh, totally, and I would say. The only time I've had an experience where someone has cried, it was me. <laughs> so, um, so it definitely, 
it definitely does happen, but it's, you know, again, there's so much, and this is the part that's so lovely for me, is that it changes every single time because it's the person who's having the experience that brings themselves to it. And so, you know, you're just meeting them where they're at. I feel like we could talk forever because I find this so fascinating, but I just wanted to say a few things. One, um, we the more that I talk to my museum colleagues and even with this podcast, this idea of, of humanism really comes up. Like we're all human and we work in museums and we're trying to help other human beings. And um, Museum Sage strikes me as a wonderful tool to do this, but we still have this barrier. I don't know if it's cultural or whatever, but um, we can't talk about our feelings and our emotions. So, um, you know, Rainy and I had conversations about people we know who would be, who would really enjoy doing this and those other people who would maybe not. And like, maybe our husbands were on that list. Um, And I I guess I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about how, if, if I really wanted to do this again, how could I convince my husband to come along with me? How do you get those people who say, that sounds too emotional, I'm not going to do that with a stranger in public? No way. Well, it really depends what question they want to ask. So they don't have to ask a deep emotional question at all. They just don't. So it's everyone has their own way of doing this, and whatever barriers they feel comfortable with is great. And I also think we're learning... You know, again, you know, what it means to be audience centered doesn't mean that you serve every member of your audience with exactly the same thing uh, because people need different things. And to be humanist, you sort of recognize those differences. And so I think it's okay too if this works for a certain chunk of the population extremely well and we can give it to them in a very profound way that has a high. Uh, high chance of being that transformative aha moment that we're always searching for. Uh, art museums are wonderful, but I work in the history world. And Rainy and I did have a discussion about this after um, after we did our experience. How could this possibly work at other institutions? Like, um, we've worked in history museums together, so I can, sure, you can walk into a historic house and go through this experience, but you don't want to, I don't know, you don't want to end up with like a pewter spoon. Um, I I hate to contradict you, but a pewter spoon can open up worlds. It can open up universes. I can't even tell you the number of times that people have chosen, let's say, an armoire with a lot of drawers. I mean, the metaphors available with that are just amazing. So um, when we first started doing it, we did it in a way that you didn't always get an art piece. Sometimes you got a blank wall. Or a fire extinguisher. Oh. And actually, those were just as good as the art. I hate to say that. <laughs> but um, we have um, someone that we trained. Three times in a row when she did it, she got three different fire extinguishers at three different locations in the museum. And was like, okay. I, she said, I'm getting spooked now. I'm officially spooked. <laughs> but <laughs> That's um, quite a metaphor. But you, really, extinguisher. human beings are geared to make meaning out of anything we could play it in this hotel room and i guarantee you would get some meaning out of it yeah let's do it i'm ready to play (laughs) what's next for museum sage well we have an app that we're bringing out and so we're uh we've we've already done it with the we've used it with the royal bc museum in victoria british columbia 
and they had a party for 1,100 visitors. Mm. And uh, I went in and trained six volunteers uh, to docents, and they were kept busy for three hours solid. They, in fact, were pretty exhausted by the end, (laughs) but they said that they loved it. They had great experiences and that everyone was very, um, very up for having an experience with being guided by a professional, but some people really wanted to use the app. They didn't want to interact with someone they didn't know. So we're, we're just looking at, you know, some people prefer an expert guided experience and some people will prefer... Um, a self-guided experience more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we just want to give museums uh, the choice or you know, a multitude of options for how to serve their visitors. So if somebody wants to have this guided experience, they're listening to the podcast, they're inspired, they want to um, be guided, how do they get a guide? Well, we're looking for museums who want <laughs> to become uh-huh. sites for Museum Sage. Mm-hmm. So... Um, we're open. We, we want this to spread all over the world. Should people go to your website? Yep, museumsage.com. Mm-hmm. We'll give you a lot of information and just contact me and I will set you up. Lori, is there anything else you want to say to someone who, after all of this, might still be skeptical of the experience? Oh, gosh. Um, <clears throat> really, there's nothing to lose. You know, the worst thing that can happen is you look at one piece for 10 to 15 minutes. And the best thing that can happen is you can have some major dilemma solved. The power of art mm-hmm. and the power of history and the power of science is the power of museums. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure to Thank have you. Uh, Rainy, one of my favorite people, and Lori, one of my new favorite people. Thank you so much, and all the best to Museum Sage. Thanks, Marie, again. All the best to museum people. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. So, Marika, one of the things that I just in a in a very broad sense coming out of the interview to, to uh, for me is I recognize the similarities between Museum Sage and Museum Hack that we mentioned before. Uh, Museum Hack being in another episode we were talking about them where they actually go in and do tours um, in a museum, and Museum Sage is sort of a similar type of thing in that it's an outside venture that comes into the museum and basically enhances the museum experience. Yeah, it's a disruptive industry Mm -hmm. in museums. So do museums actually welcome Museum Sage in? I know that Museum Hack can be somewhat controversial, although museum folks are now starting to accept them a little bit more. Museum Sage folks uh, fully accepted? Yeah, it's a totally different experience. So Museum Hack, from what I understand, I've never been on one of their tours. They organize themselves completely independent of the museum. They come into the museum and they do their thing. Um, Museum Sage is different. Lori uh, wants to license Museum Sage to the museum itself, Mm. train the guides directly, those who are employed or volunteer for the museum, and they're the ones that give the experience. So it is... It sounds as though it's potentially a very emotional experience. Is that what you found? Was it emotional? Absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't cry during the tour, but I can see how one would. 
especially if it was an issue that was close to one's heart. Mm. Well, so the whole notion, though, of museums and emotion is something that I feel very strongly that museums need to be tapping into that a little bit more because uh, we've traditionally been an, uh, an educational experience. We've tried, you know, we try to engage people with learning and all this type of thing. And I think that I keep coming back to why is Disneyland so popular with their fake history? It's because they elicit a lot of emotions and, you know, that come from things. And we need to be doing a better job in museums of connecting people with their emotions through the objects. And I think this does that. It uh, sounds as though this does that. Um, I was really interested to hear her say something to the effect that a pewter spoon can open up worlds, meaning, you know, this sort of simple object or the fire extinguishers. I love uh, that's that, yeah. it, right? And yeah. so, you know, it doesn't really fully matter what the object is. It's sort of the experience that mm-hmm. connects people and you never know what's going to what's going to do it. Well, sure, whatever you put in is what you get out. Hmm. There's a lot of wisdom in museums it's like we're just repositories for this great thought of the human past and the natural past and we should be looking to that for answers um, and for solace and support and comfort and any educator will tell you that that was there all the time Mm. (laughs) you know you can hear these these educators being like this is just repackaging bts like this is just this is like guys we've been telling you this for years um but it took someone from the outside to label it in a different way and hey we we can all benefit from that why not i love that she described it as a game because when i experienced it um it was with rainy and it was such a it was a serious Hmm. it was a serious experience and uh for for the creator to call it a game um gave it a different different tone and a permission to be not as serious, to take it as seriously. And like, if I didn't have an answer, that's okay. Can it be competitive? Can you go with a group and like win? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably in some degree you, you could do like that. Like a drinking game yeah. or something, right? Sure. Like, right? Now that's an Part. idea, Dan. Right, yeah. A, a museum drinking game around objects. Yeah. I this is good. see all sorts of bad things happening. No, there. no, 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 no. Let the lawyers say that. <laughs> This is great. What do you think the future of Museum Sage is? Well, um, I know that you and I were discussing with a lot of people after the conference or during the conference after her presentation, and there was some concern that she was just selling a product mm. and uh, shilling to some degree. And I, I, I still hear people saying that, but I, I don't get it. Um, you know, she's someone who came up with a game and she wants to share it with the world. And she wants some intellectual control over it. And yeah, she should be compensated financially for mm. that. Um, a lot of the innovations that the museum field attracts typically come from folks that work with museums and not in museums, I'm finding. A lot of the... Absolutely. You have to yeah. get outside the field to really get some perspective and, and see how museums really need help. Yeah. I think when you're in the field working day to day, you don't get that. Um, so it's 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 really important to think. You know, people think, oh, if I get a job outside the field, that's it. It's over. I'm disconnected. Right. But there's so many ways to stay involved, and Lori is showing us how we can do that. Marika and I are about ready to go and walk around the Cambridge Historical Society with my my eyes covered, I guess. And uh, <laughs> everybody else, folks, I uh, hope you get to participate in Museum Sage at some point. Marika, get your training. <laughs> Well, thanks, everybody, for being with us. We'll see you next time. Keep up the good work, museum people. Next time on Museum People. Sorry for the rants, museum people, but you know we're on your side. 
my goal is that John F. Kennedy is not just an interesting historical figure, but actually relevant to your life today. Down is up, up is down in so many ways. You've adopted and my saying. Is it you say that? <laughs> I thought it was Proust that said that. <laughs> Museum People is a production of the New England Museum Association, which connects, inspires, and empowers cultural institutions to provide their communities with deep and authentic experiences. Have an idea or comment for Museum People? Go to nemanet.org slash museumpeople to provide feedback, get information about episodes, and learn how to subscribe. Thanks for listening.